is Good Faith Effort with Ari Lam. And here's your host, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lam. Hello, hello. I am Ari Lam, and welcome to Good Faith Effort. Ancient tradition divides up the Bible into 54 portions, just about one for each week of the year. So each week, we take a look at one portion and identify a big idea or a big question that comes out of it. And this week, we're going to start with the very first section, right at the beginning of the book of Genesis. And this section covers, you know, roughly chapters like one through six of Genesis. And in Hebrew, it's called Bereshit, which means in the beginning. Before we get to it, let me tell you a little bit about a rocket ship that I built. When I was a kid, my incredible dad got really into building model rocket ships. It was like his Elon Musk phase. It was awesome. You would launch these things like 2,000 feet into the air. You could load it up with an action figure. It would parachute down. You'd have to catch it. It was really fun. Uh, well, it became fun because the first time my dad built a rocket, the thing it wouldn't even launch. Then the second time it launched, but it exploded in midair and the action figure you know, unfortunately went to that big toy closet in the sky. Uh, the third time, everything went well, but the rocket never came back down because it got stuck in a tree. It may even still be there, who knows? And it wasn't until the fourth time that we actually got it right. Now, don't get me wrong, the payoff was amazing. And this was back when, you know, the Apollo 13 movie was doing the rounds on cable and our energy was like, yeah, we could fully have done exactly as good a job as those guys. But in all seriousness, we messed up a bunch. And... While I could come up with a ton of adjectives to describe the job we did, godlike would not have been one of them. And yet, that's exactly how the Bible describes the actual creation of the world and its early history. It's a series of false starts and do-overs. So first, God creates man, Adam. And then God goes, no, wait, he'll be too lonely. So then he creates Eve. And then God makes clear that humanity is going to live a charmed life without sin or any hard work in the Garden of Eden, and that's going to be the way things are. But again, the plan doesn't work out, and God ends up putting humans in the world as we know it today with all its requirements for hard work. Yet another example, God grants Adam and Eve two kids, Cain and Abel, and it's a good start to populating the planet, right? Wrong. Cain ends up killing Abel. And then Cain's descendants actually end up getting wiped out as well. And so in the Bible's telling, Adam and Eve actually have a third son, Seth, from whom we're all descended. And of course, the ultimate false start actually comes in next week's section, which is the story of Noah and the flood. And the Bible's story about the flood and Noah's ark is a literal example of God taking a do-over. And this is actually why one of the greatest sages in Jewish history, named Rabbeinu Tam, who lived in France during the Middle Ages, back when France had a lot of awesome Jews in it, proposed that the whole process of creation itself was a false start of sorts. In his view, God had the idea to create the world in the Hebrew month of Tishrei, which is around about this time of year, but didn't actually do it until six months later. And it's crazy when you think about it, because even as the Bible is the best-selling book of all time, this kind of storytelling violates every rule of blockbuster storytelling, right? So if the beginning of Genesis was like a Michael Bay movie, it would open with a huge explosion and then we'd be introduced really quickly to the main protagonist of the movie who's really clearly the good guy and he'd be played by Ryan Gosling and, you know, there'd be some challenges along the way, of course, but everything would turn out well. Ryan Gosling would get the girl. They'd all fly away in a helicopter, roll credits. But in the Bible, what you get is actually the exact opposite, 
We change settings a bunch of times. The rules of the story aren't established until like three chapters in. We kill off a bunch of potential main protagonists in the early going. So what gives? God is doing the stage direction and theologically, God is perfect. So shouldn't the story of God creating the world read like a fully edited finished product rather than a raw, unedited draft? The truth is that's actually the whole point. The very lesson the Bible teaches us, the very first lesson that God models for us is how to cope with failure and the messiness of existence. And because all of creation begins with these false starts or seeming failures, I brought on someone who really knows about failure and false starts before finding incredible success. And so it's my total pleasure to welcome the op-ed editor of the New York Post, columnist in multiple awesome places like First Things, the Catholic Herald, and one of the great political thinkers of our time, Saurabh Amari. Saurabh, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, Rabbi, thank you. That's very kind of you. Saurabh, we just talked about how every creation story worth anything at all is always going to have ups and downs. And your own creation story certainly has that. So you have this incredible book, From Fire by Water, My Journey to the Catholic Faith, which is sort of a a travel memoir of sorts. You start off as a kid in Iran, excited about Shia Islam, and you end up a notable Catholic thinker in America. And the temptation to flatten that journey into a summer blockbuster style, simple storyline is really strong. But your story is way more layered than that. So can you tell us what happened along the way? Sure, yeah. I mean, I, I grew up in a very secular family, the Islamic Republic of Iran. I guess I had that intuition that every child has that there must be a God, maybe. But then after a while, I lost my faith. I mean, at about 12 or 13, I decided I was an atheist while I was still in Iran. The reasons for it were manifold. The main one was that God, as I encountered him in the Islamic Republic, was the God of the Islamic Republic. God was the morality committee and all the hypocrisies that went with that. Behind closed doors, my parents lived one life, and then outside our doors, they lived another. Behind closed doors, they drank alcohol, you know, they were surrounded by Western books and movies and ideas. We know nothing of this in the Jewish tradition. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The world outside, we had to pretend that we were something else. And all the hypocrisies that that engendered made me conclude that God is a public hypocrisy. And the other fact was, at least in my social milieu, kind of middle class, educated, urbane, to be religious meant to be that you're a sap. Smart people knew that there was no God. And I thought I was part of that milieu. And so I decided there was no God. And then over a course of about 20 years, including one big migration across the Atlantic, I I want to say I read and reasoned my way to the Catholic faith, so that's not quite the right thing to say because obviously it's God who takes the first step and we respond in faith. But at any rate, through a very winding path that went through like a Marxist phase, which is very typical, <laughs> and a kind of confused, bourgeois, happy, but ultimately not happy phase, through all of that to deciding that there is a God. And then ultimately deciding there's a personal God and ultimately, ultimately deciding that the God of the Bible is true. Your journey to faith has a number of key moments. And I think the most incredible thing about it is it's not this stereotypical one moment you're this, another moment you're that. And it has a number of these key inflection points. And one of the most important, I think, is this epiphany that you have right near Penn Station of all places. For me, Penn Station is primarily a cathedral to kosher haagen right? But in your story, that area of the city has much different meaning. So can you talk a little bit about what happened to you there? Yeah. So this is, I'm 22, 23 years old. I'm working as a school teacher, having joined Teach for America. By this point, I was training new Teach for America teachers. 
I guess in material terms, I was going from success to success, but there was this emptiness and meaninglessness in my life, which I think is unique to me. No other 23-year-old goes through that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it often found an outlet in, in just drinking too much. It's not that I was drinking every day, but when I drank, I drank. And on one such occasion, I about to come to New York to help train new Teach for America teachers. But on the way, I got into a car accident. It was my fault. I failed to yield to a car. But just so happened as I was running into that car that I noticed that it wasn't an ordinary car. It had the letters P-O-L-I-C-E, which is the worst feeling. <laughs> I, would, I would say the worst <laughs> thing is to ever run into a cop car. But anyway, somehow yeah, I just got away with a warning and made it to Manhattan, drank more to try to drown my stress and sorrow. Then on the way back to Boston, where I was living at the time, I was sort of circling a, a block around Penn Station. And as it happens, there's a Capuchin monastery that most people don't know about near Penn Station. I stepped in and just as the mass was about to begin. And at that point, I think my sum total of my associations or knowledge of Catholicism was, you know, a sense that it's the original form of Christianity. So it had some prestige. I had seen The Godfather with its famous scene of the uh, the sacrament of baptism intercut with killings. And my mother was an abstract expressionist and painter in Iran, so I knew something about the church's sacred art tradition. But at any rate, that was it. I, I didn't know much. And I went in and I found just an incredible sense of peace, the sense that there was such a thing as holiness that's objective, that's not just a creation of my mind, but that is, something is taking place at the altar. And this idea of sacrifice, which I found incredibly moving and longed for the sacrifice that is at the heart of every religion, including pagan religion. You know, by the end of it, it's not that I became a Catholic, but, but I sensed that there's such a thing as grace. And then as I was walking out, in most vestibules of Catholic churches, there's usually a portrait of the reigning Pope. And back then it was Benedict XVI. And having already been moved to tears by the Mass itself, I was again sent into a kind of rapture of tears by the portrait of the Pope. And the friar who had just celebrated Mass came up to me and said, you know, son, that's not God. That's just the Pope. Even in my tears, I was annoyed by that because I, I, like, I know <laughs> who the Pope is. But in that set of experiences, I found the sum total of Catholicism in a way, uh, the idea of God's outpouring of grace. And then order and continuity in the form of the Pope and authority, which human beings long for. Our civilization tells us we want authority. Catholicism in a capsule is grace and order in harmony. It would take me another eight years to become a Roman Catholic, but that was a crucial milestone. I think it's amazing because, you know, I, I often get this sense, especially if you've ever had a Marxist phase, you're familiar with this sense or this argument that in any supposed conflict between science and religion, religion is supposed to have the higher bar to clear. Science is sort of the easy explanation and religion has this like much higher burden of proof. And it's always seems so backwards to me, just in the sense that if you've lived on planet Earth for like longer than two seconds, you know that we live in an extremely weird place. Life is odd. Life is weird. So many crazy things happen. So it seems to me that in that respect, religion just has by far the more intuitive and normal account of human existence. And I think when you walk into a Capuchin monastery, and you have this sense of peace and calm, that's not fancy, that's truth. And I think there's something wonderful about that. Imagine encountering stories about horrible child sexual abuse and ruling out the possibility that there are demons. A priori, right? How do you so, know there are demons? Is that not the clearest explanation for why people do things like that? So one thing that I want to do on this podcast is I want to give my hottest take about my guest. And that actually is a perfect segue into my hottest take about you which is that I think that 
you are the Iranian thinker that America needs right now. And I want to unpack that for a second. Ah. So Jewish tradition has these incredibly rich resources about any topic you can possibly imagine. But, you know, given the different societies in which Jews have found themselves, they've been able to emphasize different parts of that tradition or unpack different parts of it to address the big major problems of the day. And so the Jewish thinkers who have had the most profound things to say in Jewish tradition about demons, the problem of evil and forces of evil in our lives actually were Iranian. Uh, namely the rabbis who put together the Babylonian Talmud, mm. which after the Bible is our most sacred text 1,500 years ago. And I think it's because Iran in general has just this very long and ancient tradition of thinking very deeply about demons <laughs> and about evil and where it comes from. And America today has this very post-enlightenment, disenchanted sense that everything has a logical and rational explanation. And if you talk about evil as a force to be reckoned with, you're kind of like a little weird and gauche and melodramatic. And I actually see you as one of the countervailing forces in American life who says, no, evil is not just something that happens. It's actually a force and we have to deal with it and recognize with it. And if we don't, our politics are failing. So that's my hottest take about you. I'm curious what you think about that. Yeah, thank you. Since becoming Catholic, I've now gone back to what Iran represents. And maybe to take the question just slightly different direction, it is just an incredibly spiritually rich place. I'm now pondering a new book project. I have another book coming out in March, but then after that, there's no biography of Mani. So Mani was this Iranian prophet in late antiquity, about 200 years after Jesus, who created the first kind of universal religion because he saw himself as a successor, not just to Jesus, but also Zoroaster, the Iranian proto-prophet, and the Buddha. And he created the quintessentially Gnostic religion in the sense that he believed that the world is this side of the battleground between starkly good and evil forces, dark and, and light, and that all of creation is bad because there was some cosmic battle in the early universe in which the darkness trapped the light in human bodies. And so bodies in some sense are evil. This is very, very anti-Jewish fundamentally, by the way. Actually, one of my teachers who I had a very deep and close relationship with was a man by the name of Yaakov Elman. He invented a field called Irano-Talmudica, which is understanding the background of the Babylonian Talmud against culture of Iran. And he was fascinated by Mani and by the way in which Jewish thinkers really were responding to a lot of yeah. what Mani represents, the dualism of good and evil and the idea that the body is evil. I, absolutely right. Yes. And it's not the only religion that has Iranian roots, obviously, some Mandaeans and the profound sort of Jewish footprint on, on Iranian spirituality is there as well. In Manichaeism, I, say, I guess the, the thing that might be interesting for a Jewish audience is its hostility to the law. And, and all Gnostic faiths share this, that the God of the Old Testament is not really God, but a sort of demiurge. And therefore, the moral law that he imposed is invalid. Which of course, or mainstream Christianity went out of its way to reject. Right, this is the view of Marcion. Yes, Marcion and, and Manichaeans in various ways went out of its way to reject. But yes, Iran is just this, as I now rediscover it through Christian eyes, I find it a fascinating place of religious ferment and still today. I want to pan out to America at large now. So much of, of your life and so many of our lives 
going back to the creation story in Genesis, the creation of the world, consists of a series of redos uh, or refoundings, as we were talking about earlier. And so our country seems pretty clearly to be at a point where we need a refounding. I think even more, we need a revamping towards more traditional values. We need a genesis of our own. And so what are some of the the values or the stories or the traditions that America needs to, or that Americans should reacquaint themselves with if we want to find our way back to something virtuous? It was very difficult about the moment is, is that it's a moment of intense kind of quasi-religious zeal, including with put themselves forward as absolute claims for justice. And yet it's also a moment in which some of the protagonists of, who, who put forward those claims for justice also rejected there's such a thing as a objective plurality. And so they make claims for justice even as they deny. So what would be the basis of those claims for justice? So for example, a faithful Jewish person or a Christian can say that there are such a thing as let's say structural sins, right? In the sense that it's not just my individual sins or the aggregate of our individual sins, but that there are sins of a nation, right? The biblical prophets- Idolatry is a good example. Including race idolatry. Yes. And so the biblical prophets constantly talk about structural sin. They don't use that word because it's modern, but they do, they condemn entire nations. So for, for, for resolving the race question, biblical faith supplies not just the language, but a robust conception and also of penance of what that means. But it's ruled out by the protagonists of the current kind of racial uprising, if you will. So that's the real tension. And so I do think, as you, you said, that tradition is not the enemy of, of people who seek after justice. Also, I, what I also say to, to, to conservatives on my own side is that, that justice, including social justice, is not an illegitimate goal, rightly defined and, and understood. Judaism and Christianity and Islam have this rich tradition of how to think about not just our own individual salvation or what have you, but how to structure our societies so they're good societies. But that's all premised on there being such a thing as the good that's intelligible. But the ideology that's behind these movements denies that there's a good that's intelligible. But it also asks for justice. It also asks for good. It's bizarre. In other words, at the very moment that we most need the objectivity that tradition supplies, our cultural overlords have rejected it just at the moment when it would be most useful. And that really is the both the tragedy of where we've come, but also supplies, I think, a roadmap for a way back. And an opportunity, yeah. Absolutely. So, Rob, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, my pleasure. Look, in the end, the lesson of Bereshit, of this first section of the book of Genesis is that being unfinished is actually okay. It's not a failure. Starting and stopping, trying and failing, and then getting up again and keeping going, that's the story of the world we're in. It's how the world was created, and it's that weird, messy, strange, raw quality that actually makes life worth living. And the important question you have to ask yourself is, where in your journey are you? Are you moving forward? Are you moving ahead? If so, then you're going in the right direction. This has been Ari Lamb making a good faith effort. See you next time. Good Faith Effort was created and written by Ari Lamb. 
If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice because it really helps others find the show. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. The show is produced and edited by Paul Ruest. This is a Joshua Network podcast presented by B'nai Zion. Follow us on Twitter at GFaithEffort. Follow Ari at Ari Lamb and sign up for our email list at thejoshuanetwork.com. The Joshua Network is now Soul Shop.